Listen, it's no secret that customers today expect the best experience from every business, including yours. Whether it's with customer support, sales, or everything in between, Zendesk products help you give your customers the experience they deserve. Even better, qualifying startups can join the Zendesk for Startups program and get Zendesk products for free for six months. It's all of Zendesk, free for six months. Win on every channel with the Zendesk for Startups program. Visit zendesk.com equity to claim your free six months of Zendesk. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we, as always, unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am TechCrunch's Alex Wilhelm, and joining me this week is Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, how is New York, and how are you? Uh, I'm doing fantastic, Alex. How are you? Uh, reasonably good. Um, that, that was very convincing. Well, here's the thing. I'm doing fine, but the world is not. And so it's weird. It's a weird question to answer because, given the kind of sheer amount of chaos that that's been kind of blasting across the news wires, it feels a bit gauche to say my life's lovely today. But you know, I had a good lunch. I'm feeling pretty good. But let's talk about the markets. There's no kind of avoiding this. If you track technology, if you track startups, venture capital, all that good stuff, you see what happens to the public markets. And in the last couple of days, it's been a complete shellacking. I think is pretty much the only way to put it. We haven't seen declines of this magnitude in some time, and it's gotten everyone in the world talking about what's going on and what might happen next. Danny, just giving you a gut check to the listeners and all of our friends out there, how surprised are you by this a, a eventual and kind of a finally happened moment in the U.S. stock market? Completely not surprised. I mean, I, I, I we're not allowed to actively trade, but I did trade my 401k portfolio into a money market fund like two weeks ago. So I'm, I'm quite pleased with the, uh, the, the choice. I actually sold at literally the peak a couple weeks ago. And so, so I feel vindicated. Like my, my retirement is secure. All $500 of it. I was going to say, this is not actually a show designed to let us brag, but I'll give you three points for that one. I'm doing the old fashioned, like long-term investing, keep your money where it is, let it do whatever thing. So we'll see who's right in the end. For people just catching up, though, if you're not active in the U.S. stock market, stocks have fallen tremendously over like 10% the last couple of days. And that was, it's really been kind of following the U.S. news cycle. So as the coronavirus, the kind of thing that has come out of the disease world, I'm not a doctor, that's the best I can do, has become more prevalent both internationally, closing more borders, impacting more economies, hurting more trade routes, and also popping up here at home, concern has risen. Also, we're beginning to see impacts of the lengthy Shuttering of large parts of China reflected in trade and supply chain disruptions. Companies like Microsoft, Booking Holdings, which runs Booking.com, and Nutanix have highlighted issues in their revenue and earnings coming up. So the the slowdown is here after weeks of talking about it and kind of expecting it. And then finally, Goldman, which you've all heard of, they forecasted that U.S. companies will have zero growth in 2020 which is pretty damning because growth is kind of what powers the stock market's expansion. And that's kind of the, 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 the bad news. SaaS companies are also taking a hit, Danny. Am I missing any, uh, any bad news here? Obviously, people are dying. Um, you know, thousands of people yes. are being marooned. Hundreds of millions in China and around the world are, have been quarantined. So, so those are the headlines. But I, I think what's interesting is, is there's, there's two patterns here. One is I, I want to focus in on Zoom or let's call it Zoom in on Zoom. But, you know, Zoom, the, the video conferencing software that also helps us run equity, is having the best time of its goddamn effing life. So they, they have doubled the stock value in just the last couple of weeks from the low 60s in early December to about 114 as we're recording this show. So 80, 80 to 100 percent. 
and its market cap is now at almost $32 billion. Wow. And uh, I, I, I'm kind of annoyed by this, but it's kind of funny just to point out that their forward PE ratio is 435 right now. And so Yahoo Finance has them as overvalued. Uh, but I do think <laughs> I do think the coronavirus, I mean, the, the upshot of this is that because all the flights are being canceled, you know, a ton of conferences, we just heard today that uh, F8, the big Facebook developers conference, we're hearing people are pulling out of uh, the game developers conference in SF next month, GDC. There's even talk about the uh, Tokyo Olympics later this summer uh, possibly being canceled. I think we're actually going to see a huge shift around remote work. You know, we've been talking about remote work. We've seen a lot of companies. Andreessen just did a round in a, a company that's doing kind of like remote conferences. But I think the, the coronavirus is really going to force companies and decision makers to really ask, like, do you need to fly to do this sales meeting? Do you need to fly to this conference to learn something? Do you need to drive to a seminar? And I, I do think we're going to see a, a shift in the economy where people go, actually, remote work kind of works okay. We, we have tools and, and, and it, it's changed a lot in the last decade. Yeah, I mean, well, people might not know this, but TechCrunch itself is a relatively remote first organization. And my work history has been majority remote. I worked for it the next web for my first like four years as a journalist, and they were based in Amsterdam, and I was in Chicago and then SF, and I, I never went to the actual office once in that time period. So to me, this is relatively normal, but I think for a lot of folks, it's always been kind of this disgust point, not a, re, like a, a realized reality. So I'll be curious to see if that does work out, but certainly Zoom, other future of work products, and other companies that kind of service people that are not in the same room might do well. I would say, given Zoom's rapid value appreciation that we're seeing some active trading as opposed to fundamental value creation, but certainly it's a stock to keep in mind. If you haven't caught up on what's going on with Reddit, Wall Street bets, and the stock market, take a look. It's kind of fun. If you want to get a, a window into how the chat rooms of the 90s that helped pump stocks have now turned into semi-closed Reddit forums, it's, it's quite an adventure. Zoom, I'm not saying it's part of that kind of pump and dump world, but uh, it reminds me of some of the value appreciations we've seen at other stocks that have been manipulated in the last couple months. I think, I think you know, th this is a question around Tesla we brought up and, you know, a bunch of other stocks. But my takeaway from that is, look, it's, if you're trading over-the-counter OTC stocks, penny stocks, okay, fine, there's not a lot of liquidity. You can actually do a lot on the tick and whatnot. And these stocks, you know, let's take Zoom as an example, 32 billion market cap company. You have to have a lot of money to move that share price one way or the other. If you're, maybe, maybe everyone's long and therefore like almost no one's willing to, to sell. And so therefore your, your price gets kind of moved higher and higher. But my, my assumption is, is that that's not true. And certainly for most of these big tech companies, like if you're Microsoft and you're a trillion dollar market cap company, like ain't no one change. You could, you can be, you know, Warren Buffett and go, I'm going to buy the whole stock and the stock price will barely move. That's the scale that I think we're talking about with a lot of these shares. So it might change, you know, as the market hits volatility and, and whatnot. But uh, to me, it was blown way out of proportion. Well, I mean, I hope so, because that would mean there's less manipulation in the stock market and values are more reasonable. So let's hope you're right. But it is a fun story regardless. But let's move along away from the main public markets to talk about a company that wants to join public company world, which is DoorDash. Uh, after quite a long time of hearing that this company will go public, kind of a needed win for both SoftBank and the Vision Fund, DoorDash has filed confidentially to go public. And Danny, I want you to tell us the difference between filing to go public and filing privately to go public. Yeah, so for companies that are under about a billion in revenue, the Jobs Act of 2012 allows startups to file basically their S1 without having to do it publicly. So, so generally speaking, in the S1 process, you file publicly, which means you, you literally post it to the web, and then the SEC gives you feedback on that doc. You might make changes, some, some individual, if you remember, like, what was it, community-adjusted revenue or some of these made it was, up? No, no, it was community-adjusted EBITDA. So it was adjusted EBITDA, which is already super-adjusted. 
Right, 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 right. You know, and the SEC is going to give you feedback on that. This this approach was designed to encourage companies to at least go public earlier, at least get feedback on their S1s, and, and to do it in such a way that, like, if, if the numbers don't turn out well or some things get blocked by the SEC, you have time to sort of recover without kind of embarrassing yourself in public. The reason we actually find out about most of these confidential S1s is that the bankers know that they're going to become real public S1s, and so they file confidentially and then leak it to the press and go, gee, someone somewhere has filed something. Right. Two, two things, though, about this one. Why would the SEC let companies do this? Well, if you let companies file privately when they're smaller, it lets them, it decreases the amount of risk they take on, making the on-ramp to public markets a bit easier, and the number of public companies has fallen sharply in the last, I forget the time frame, like 10, 20 years. And so this is a way to help kind of bolster that number again. And also with, if you recall back to Asana's private IPO file or private direct listing filing, I guess, technically, they are just putting out press releases saying we've done this. So they're, they're filing privately, telling you publicly they will go public, but it's private for now. And that's very 2020, but it's also kind of a key dynamic to understand as you look at the IPO market for this year. Now, it's, it's announcing your stealth fundraise. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> it's like saying we have cool things over here. You may not see them. Exactly. It's, it's, the, it's the sneaker drop. It's the, st- I, yes, it's the sneaker. Do- that's the thing when the shoes come out for a short period of time. I have right? no idea. I'm okay. just trying to act cool. Uh, I, I turned 30. I, I lost all ability to have coolness anymore. Now we're both in our thirties now, which I think means that we'll never be cool again on DoorDash though. So Danny mentioned that if you have less than a certain amount of revenue, you can file privately. Keep in mind that DoorDash is right about the sides. So we have a suspicion that this was kind of the end of the time period in which they could file privately because they're about to be too large. So let's get into the numbers and talk a little bit about what we have here. The company is worth around 13 billion, which is a, a large number, not the most valuable private company we've ever seen. We work at its peak, Uber pre-IPO, those were both larger, but certainly a decacorn and a very valuable company. The company was valued at $1.4 billion in 2018 to give you kind of an understanding of how fast it's appreciated in value. And that is driven by tons and tons of private capital, often coming through the lens, uh, sorry, not the lens, the accounts of the Vision Fund, but the company has attracted capital from Kleiner and Sequoia throughout its history. So a lot of backers have put a lot of money in this company for, I think, different reasons at different stages, but it's well-funded. And it has some comps. So we're not talking about a company completely in the abstract. Danny, can you just run us through some comps quickly and then we'll talk about its uh, results? Yeah, so I think the, the the biggest comp here is Uber Eats. So, you know, Uber went public. We now have a lot of data from Uber Eats, which is one of its sub-business lines. But in Q4 2019, ending December 31st, Uber Eats did $4.3 billion in GMV on the platform and, seven, and, and just slightly more than $700 million in gap revenue. It is extremely unprofitable. And I, I think we were expecting the same thing with DoorDash, but that 734 million gap revenue turned into a negative 461 million EBITDA due to the expense and expansion and everything else there. And, and that's going to be, I think, the, the hardest part for a lot of you know, all the food delivery companies. We've seen this with Grubhub, which has seen a, a 40% share price drop over the last year, partly due to DoorDash, partly due to Uber Eats, also partly due to you know, the challenges in some of these markets. I think we were talking, what, a couple of weeks, months ago about, you know, different geographies have done well with, and there was that app in the South that no one's ever heard of that apparently owns the Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, marketplace. And then just last week, we were talking about Hungry Panda, which yep. is focused on the Chinese language market, focused on Chinese food and Chinese restaurants. And so, you know, it, what, what's interesting here is I, I do think they were forced because of the confidential filing rules. I just also think there's a lot of competition coming from so many different directions. And so at some point, it is a marketing kind of uh, business. I mean, you have to get customers. You're constantly trying to buy mindshare, right? And right. so 
you know, Seamless constantly pings me, uh, Uber Eats constantly. I get a coupon to Uber Eats every three days to spend $20 for free, which I never use, which is why they keep giving me free coupons. <laughs> if you recall from the show, we've actually talked about my free coupons on Uber Eats and I still get them like every week. And so I, I do think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this goes in a, in a, a volatile market. The upshot, which is coming, is, is, you know, if coronavirus does come and hits America and some other markets hard, food delivery becomes a really fascinating vertical in addition to video conferencing software. And so, you know, even though the market may be impossible for every single other company to go out, this may be one of the few exceptions. So we'll have a lot to see going forward. Tell people why that's the case. I think I know what you're thinking, but make that explicit. Why would DoorDash do well in a coronavirus world? Uh, if everyone's quarantined at home or even if they self-quarantine and they don't leave the house, so they don't go to the grocery store, they're not going to restaurants, they're not going anywhere, you order on an app, the food shows up, hopefully the driver hasn't sneezed on it, uh, uh, and uh, here we are. Okay, now I want to pause the the we, the script. So every week we write a script for the show, we talk about it, and we kind of run through it and have some fun. It's now 4.02 p.m. on Thursday. We record the show Thursday afternoons, we put it out Friday mornings. I want to get Danny's off-the-cuff reaction because the markets have just closed, and I have some final numbers from CNBC, and I want to know how far Danny's face will fall when I tell him what has happened in the last hour or so while we prepped this show. So, Danny, uh, off-the-cuff, the Dow closed down 1,196 points. He's making a face like this. Ah! Uh, off 4.44%. The S&P is off 4.43%, and the NASDAQ closed down 4.61%. So on a scale of one to panicked, uh, how are you feeling right now? Well, like I said, I already sold $200 <laughs> of my $500. Not, not about your $12 you have in Fidelity. Hey, that's, you know, selling ETFs is so fun. Uh, actually, I, I'm, I'm really scared. Why? Because I have a frequent trading policy on my ETF, so I can't trade again for another 30 days. I think the sell-off is going to be quite large. I, okay. I think that we're only at the very beginning. That's how epidemics and pandemics work. If you've ever focused on taking a, a sort of epidemiology class, like we're, we're still in the early phases and, you know, it's now spread into Europe. It's spread partly into the United States. You know, it, it, there will be a little bit of bright spots here and there. Obviously, it's mostly going to be negative. And, and I think the markets are now f- fully taking that into account. And back to DoorDash. OK, so a couple of notes about the company's performance heading into this direct listing. In, in 2018, the Times reported that its deliveries had tripled. Bloomberg backed that up, saying that sales had tripled in 2018. So we know that it had a great year. Inside of 2019, net revenue was supposed to be between $900 million and $1.0 billion, according to the information, off of GMB of about $8 billion, so maybe a 12%, 13% take rate, give or take. And the company was supposed to lose around $450 million last year, again, per the information. We don't know if that is a, a net number, that's an adjusted figure, a, a straight cash number. But certainly lots of growth, high unprofitability, the kind of thing that was popular up until about September of 2019. So unclear about how this will be priced. But going back to our earlier point, a $13 billion valuation is a high bar to meet. And then two last data points and we're going to scoot on. According to Second Measure, which tracks credit card data so people can kind of see what's happening out in the market. In January of 2020, DoorDash was the leading provider in U.S. meal deliveries. I think it had 38% and then Grubhub 31 think Uber Eats is around 20% and Postman's around 10%. So that's kind of the hierarchy domestically. Finally, Thinknum sent me a chart this morning of, of job postings from DoorDash over time. And up until September of 2019, they were going up and up and up and up. And after that, they went down and down and down and down and are now down about 50%. So my read of that particular data point is DoorDash has dramatically cut how quickly it's hiring in a bid to increase profitability 
heading into this offering. So it'll have a cleaner Q4, a cleaner Q1, two quarters of improving profitability heading into an IPO that might help it float, raise enough capital and defense valuation. I think that's enough on that, Danny, but I'm excited as to how it's summarized. Look, I'm way more excited and uh, I don't think this company is going to turn into the next organic pizza box company. So, so it'll be great to watch. And that was a deep soft bank vision fund joke. And if you don't get it, listen to more equity. Okay. Roblox. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a child who is not yet old enough to play Minecraft, they might be playing Roblox, which is essentially Minecraft for kids. And you already thought Minecraft's for kids. This is for uh, like children. Kids, kids. Yes, kids, kids, kids. kids. <laughs> the news item is that Roblox has raised $150 million and a tender offered to buy $350 million in existing stock from shareholders at a $4 billion valuation. Danny, I loved this deal. Not surprised. Happy about it. Curious how you felt when you saw the news. Well, I think the, I mean, obviously it's great to see primary capital, 150 million under the balance sheet. But what what I thought was particularly interesting was was actually this tender offer. So, you know, Roblox is, is quite the old company. It's one that it's only really hit, I think, kind of mindshare in the valley in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and it, when it's really has scaled up, it's now at 100 million plus users. It has 40 million kind of games built by young children for other people. So these, yep. what they call playful experiences or something like that. But I believe the company was started in what, 05, 04? Well, like it raised its like, Series A back in 2005, so it's certainly a very old company. Right, so it raised a very small, this is, according to, I think, Crunchbase, a 560K Series A, <laughs> which you got to love. Like, in, in equity, in non-inflationary, like, a half a million dollar Series A, I mean, we don't even disclose this anymore, right? No, like, we don't, we don't even know this exists in most of these companies. So, so this is a 15-year-old company. So I, what's interesting to me was, it's a huge tender offer for a company coming up towards what would presumably be an IPO kind of window. You know, the numbers are there, the valuation is there, presumably some of the revenues are got, getting up to speed. So, so I, I was curious to see, like, who is selling right now? The fact that they're actually announcing a tender offer shows that a lot of people are looking for liquidity. So maybe those Series A and B investors, which include a bunch of firms, some we've never heard of, some we have. But I, I did find it interesting to see that, you know, there is clearly demand or they wouldn't have announced it. Yeah. So between the companies Series A and Series D, from 2005 to 2009, they raised like seven million dollars. Yeah, six, seven million. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, they raised one modern seed round over a five-year period while growing through a Series D. That is a different era. That's kind of where we used to be in the post-crash world. And then they go modern quickly. They raised four million in 2011, and then in uh, 2017, 25 million. 2018, 150, and now a half billion dollar transaction of primary and secondary. So certainly the acceleration you kind of expect to see. For people who don't know, Roblox is not just a game. It's a platform. People can build games on it for other people. That's kind of the, that's why it's kind of special and cool. And just to be brief so we can move along, but gaming companies have traditionally been hard to back from a venture perspective because their earnings are very episodic. But if you have a platform and a very dedicated audience, earnings can be a bit more consistent, making it more attractive. And of course, inside of the story is the rise of gaming as a category, the rise of esports and streaming as a way to consume content. And, you know, with 100 million MAUs, this is a movement, not just a game. Yeah. And I think, you know, we did, we did a huge deep profile last year on Roblox on Extra Crunch. You know, we, we, we had a huge amount of time with the executive team there. But one of the things that really uh, impressed me, you know, editing that piece from Chris Morrison was, you know, the, the founder of the company and, and really the whole culture has, is, is really visionary. Like this is someone who is going to spend their whole life building out this product. They, they really dived into this belief of like how to create play, how do you create safe spaces online for young children. There have been issues in the last year or two as it's expanded, it's grown into more markets and more challenges. But you know, th this is a company that you know, started with the germ of an idea 
literally struggled, uh, maybe not struggled, but like really just had to like work through low levels of capital was sort of kind of, I don't want to use bootstrap literally, but like really had to go through a long period of slow growth and is really reaping the rewards in the end. I think the CEO is just going to keep on going. And it, it's an incredible startup story if you don't know it. Yeah. And also one more little little kind of in the family factoid before we move on to uh, three really fun no-code rounds. Um, but Matt Kaufman, a former tech cruncher and crunch spacer who has been in kind of the, the broad crunch family, that's a phrase, for a long time, works for Roblox and has for some time. So it's kind of cool to see someone that I've... Uh, I've known uh, as a friend for a while uh, do well. So points to, to Matt if you hear this. Okay, now we're going to do a bit of a group, a cluster, if you will, a collection, a cohort, a small cadre of startups, a trio, a triumvirate, three of them. Murder, it's, a, it's a murder of startups. It's a murder of crows. I would say it's a disappointment of startups. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's only when it's a soft bank round. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, can you tell that it has been a long week? Because it has. Okay, we're going to do three. So uh, I'm going to list them out and then we're going to run through them. Uncork, uh, which is spelled U-N-Q-O-R-K, raised it's 51 million. Unquark. Quark. Quark. No, no. Quark. A, a quark is a quantum thing. That's Q-U-A-R-K. Quark. Mm-hmm. No, this I, is Uncork. Okay. I believe you. If it's Quark, I'm sorry. Anyways, Uncork raised 51 million. Proto-Pi raised 6.3. And um, we're going to call it uh, Guiana, G-Y-A-N-A, raised 3.9 million. So, Danny, uh, tell me which one of these is the most interesting and why can none of them have normal names? Well, the domain name, we, we, domain name space is out. Like, there's just nothing left. So, you know, it's misspellings galore going on forever. But I, I think, you know, no-code has been a huge, huge topic for the last two years, right? You know, there's a, a huge rise in software developers. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of people are going to coding academies, getting CS degrees, like, learning themselves with books, like, across the world, right? So there's been this revolution in the number of people who know how to code. But the reality is, is almost everyone has to do something with computing Everyone has to do a little bit of data science. Everyone has to connect different data sources together. And a little bit of code goes a long way. And so there's a huge venture thesis, I think, across Silicon Valley and most major venture firms around what they what is just called kind of quote unquote no code or very low code. So Uncork is really interesting because it's a huge round, 51 million, um, huge amount uh, from Alphabet and, and Capital G, which is a really um, interesting and, and it had a Series A, a couple uh, a 22 million Series A led by Goldman Sachs. And what's interesting here is is their focus on financial services. So, you know, the rise of fintech, obviously, there's just more and more companies as if anyone has been listening to equities or just gallivant about for the last couple of months. But in, in financial services, you have tens of thousands of people who are still doing underwriting. They're still doing actuarial tables and life insurance. And so I think Uncork is really getting into, you know, how do you, even if you don't know how to code, you don't have a PhD in machine learning, can you start to do some interesting stuff? improving your workflows, improving the way that you do financial services. So that's a really interesting one. I think you talked about Guyana. Yeah. So this is a story that Ingrid wrote for, for TC, and it caught my eye for a couple of reasons. One, it's a neat round, 3.9 million. The company has now raised 6.8 million. So this is you know more than half of their total capital raised in one round. Always fun to see the ratio of new capital to raise capital. I also love that it's London-based, and I love that the title, the, the name of the company, G-Y-A-N-A, is Sanskrit for knowledge. I, I'm not a, a real linguistic dork, but I did grow up with a dad who is, or yeah, still is. And so Sanskrit, whenever I see that word, I'm like, ah, childhood. So that was kind of fun. Founded by Joyita Das and David Kell, who were both pursuing postgraduate degrees at Oxford. And they had this idea because they kept hearing people talk about how everything is going to be a data-driven decision in the future. What you eat, what you do, your business, etc. But no one can do that because no one actually has the ability to do data science. And so what if you built a no-code slash low-code data science tool? I mean, it's, it's kind of brilliant in a way. Now, 
this probably won't replace, you know, LinkedIn's hardcore data science team. You know, Facebook's not going to drop their data science team and neither, neither will startups that you know. But if you give regular folks more tools, they can do a lot individually and collectively it's enormous. And that's why I'm stoked about it. And they have, a, according to Ingrid, a real focus on privacy, which also caught my eye. So a cool round. And the second of our three, the third is ProtoPy, which I know nothing about, Danny, and I'm looking forward to hearing about from you. Yeah, so ProtoPy is a, a uh, tool for designers to help create high-fidelity prototypes. So that's where the ProtoPy, or as they call it, prototyping as easy as pie. That's, it's not Sanskrit, but it's, it's cute. Um, and uh, it's been a couple of years. It, it, it's been in development for a couple of years based in Seoul, South Korea. What, what's interesting here is that they're competing against Envision Studio and a couple of other um, kind of major products, but they emphasize helping designers translate their user experiences to engineers. And so, you know, in most product teams today, if a designer is actually, you know, doing a lot of the work of interviewing and, and user testing and trying to figure out exactly what certain things should be designed, but then you have to have this handoff, right? Here's what the design is. Now engineers have to go code it and actually make it work. Um, and that's still a huge problem because most design products are designed for designers to collaborate with designers, not for designers to collaborate with engineers. And that's where ProtoPie is coming in. The founding team comes out of um, Line, Samsung, a bunch of other large Korean companies, raised $6.3 million from Vela Partners. And what's interesting is, is um, you know, that's a huge round. It's the first uh, non-Korean funded round for the company. But what's interesting is, is they already have massive contracts. They have Google, Microsoft, a bunch of other major tech companies. They already have like serious revenues. And so what's always fascinating is as soon as you get out of the Valley bubble where, you know, a million in revenue, it suddenly is a billion dollar company with a thousand X, you know, Ford multiple. <laughs> uh, as soon as you get into some of these markets, like, you know, it, it, you still can actually have a really reasonable price points, quite low size rounds, and there's real revenues under the table. So um, the other side that was interesting with ProtoPie is um, they're mostly remote. Really? So the team, even though they're in Seoul, they are actually kind of remote locally. And so they also design in the way that they're trying to help people design themselves, which is sort of remote teams collaborating together through an online so software tool. It's almost like there's a theme to a lot of recent rounds to allow for a remote work to be more effective. Danny, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Now, that's the end of the show in the serious sense. We do have one more thing to talk about, and it's going to be... well. Okay, in, in the script, in the notes, it's just labeled WTF. And that's all it says. And that's the introduction to the story. If you haven't read the Wall Street Journal's piece on SoftBank's uh, reported infighting, dealing with Rajiv Misra and some other people that he wanted to kneecap internally to the Vision Fund, go read it. We're not going to go through all of it because it is too juicy to excerpt all the way through. But if you thought that it might be a bit of a goat rodeo, to compile a $100 billion venture vehicle and set loose across the world like the $4 of the apocalypse. It is. It was. It, it, was, a, it was a hot mess. And Danny, of, of the various salacious, insane, bad spy movie details, which to you was the most winsome and, and nutritious? You know, for me... There are a couple of lessons. The most salacious one was the honey trap, honey pot, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, the, the, Rajiv Mishra is, is allegedly funded a private investigator, a private intelligence service firm to basically create a trap for a fellow exec at SoftBank in a hotel room to try to get him with, with video cameras galore inside the room, basically like the Google Nest of of honey traps uh, <laughs> or zoom AI. the zoom the, the, the yeah exactly uh, the clearview <laughs> AI of your political opposition in the company. But you know the the larger story that I took from this whole thing was just 
we, we've actually known this in some ways for, for years. You know, we, we've known that there has been leaks, that SoftBank has been very concerned about the fact that there's been sort of this campaign against some of its chief execs, yeah. and it, they could never identify who it is. And so it, what, what's amazing to me was actually the one line, which was SoftBank's spokeswoman, who's unidentified in the story, who says, for several years, we have investigated a campaign of falsehoods against SoftBank Group and certain former employees in an attempt to identify those behind it. SoftBank will be reviewing the inferences made by the Wall Street Journal, which was not a denial. Like, if you read that very carefully, mm-hmm. it's like they just nailed the, all the pieces might have fit together. So it'll be very interesting to see what's going to uh, happen. Uh, but we'll know more in the uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah, there's also so there's various characters. There's offshore companies. There's a group called K2 Intelligence, which is hilarious. There's extra cell phones. There's code names. There's a PR firm. There's payola to a British newspaper. There's deal discord. It, it's it's really like if I sat down and, and took a hit of acid and tried to write fan fiction about what might have happened inside of SoftBank, this is what would have come out. But instead of that, uh, I didn't take any acid because I'm not allowed to because I'm boring. And this is the truth, probably. So uh, hell of a story. Possibly. Read it. Yes, possibly. But I do think what's what's interesting in the last year or two, you know, you have one MDB, the you know, huge Malaysian development scandal. Yes. Where, where Joe Lowe, you know, uh, bilked billions of dollars out of a Malaysian uh, state finance development fund. And then you also have uh, Carlos Goshen, you know, who, who escaped in a, in, a, in a band box out of an airport out of Osaka to escape the N- Nissan Renault criminal case in, in Tokyo. And so we, we, we just keep having these like weird financial business caper intelligence agency, private intelligence agency stories in the last two years that just keep coming up. So it's Carlos Ghosn, according Don't, to my, sorry, my understanding. And it's also, it's Renault, not Renault. Like that was the most American thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And we're not going to cut I, that out because I want you to be ashamed <laughs> of yourself. We're going to keep that in as punishment. Um, but you're, you're I right. Say, I had, say that as I'm literally reading a French novel in front of me. Uh, there's literally a French novel two inches from my face. To be clear, Danny is incredibly well-educated and is a man of letters. <laughs> That's why it's funny to hear him make a mistake. What happens when you're not a didact? Yeah, well, he he rarely makes mistakes, so it's enjoyable. Can we talk about how you can't install a microphone in your house? Shut up. Now, on the point about 1MDB, if you want to get a better look in that, read Billion Dollar Whale. I have only read half of it. I need to finish it. But uh, he didn't really bilk so much as he just straight up stole. It's one of the most amazing stories I've ever read. It's actually, so I read the book as well. I read the whole book. I don't, I don't finish halfway through. And, uh, much in the way that I, I can plug in a microphone on both ends, not just on one end. Wow. Um, but, but I will say, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it not just stole, but it's just like, it's like, hey, can I just take $5 billion out of the account? Sure, here's a, here's a box. And you're like, okay, right. I'm just going to walk out the front door with that. Is that okay? Yep, okay. That, you know, we, we have some crazy bank story. You know, if you think like 1930s, like bank robberies, all these ultra well thought out systems. Like it's amazing that at the high level, at, 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 you know, funds that are 100 billion plus, how little anything is actually tracked at that level. Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's always just people. It's just folks and accounts. Um, but we do need to close because I'm punctual and actually have friends, unlike Danny. So that's all the time we have for this week. So Danny, thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris, on the mics. And we'll be back on Monday morning. It would be best if like you and I were in the same hotel and they were trying to honeypot the both of us and they got them switched up. So like yeah. I got a, so you got a new brunch companion. I got a video game buddy. No one gets laid. It's the most wholesome night. And like <laughs> yeah.